0: of WMYU. This is In Depth on Sports. I am your host, Ian Colalucci. And folks, it's going to be a great show this week just because of the phenomenal weekend and week itself that has gone on this week in terms of both college football, the NFL, huge weekend in NMLB signings. We're going to talk about all of that. Uh, a lot of stuff to go through this week, um, but I'm really looking forward to it. Um, apologies for the delay. Uh, my class ran a little late, so I had to... Uh, run here but uh I'm glad we're all here. I'm very excited that we're going to discuss these things with you today. And I think the f- and also we uh we have a guest this week. Uh we're going to be joined by Mr. Spencer Pierce. He's going to be discussing with us this week his thoughts on college football, college basketball. He is a commentator for Syracuse University, works on Q's Countdown and Citrus TV. He's going to be discussing with us both his thoughts on Syracuse basketball, Syracuse football, of course, but also, you know, his thoughts on this exciting weekend in college football, which we're going to get to, as well as his thoughts on the picture for college basketball going into the season. As We haven't really touched on the college game, you know, a lot this year, Um, but I'm really excited to get into it with him. Uh, We're going to be discussing a lot of that today. So... Uh, But I really want to start first things first with college football this weekend. I know usually we jump in with the NFL, but I thought this week it would be great to discuss some college football. And uh, you know what? First thing with the Michigan-Ohio State game and the Alabama-Auburn game, those two, I would say it marked one of my favorite weekends in college football over the last three or four years or so. And, you know, it's just because both of these two games, these historic Rivalries. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger. I mean, you have a Michigan-Ohio State uh, game where Michigan's in the top five for the first time in years. And, you know, Ohio State's been a contender for the last 10 years, but they were upset by a team who really was sort of, I I don't want to use this word indirectly, but it's sort of like they were shadow banned a little bit. You know, they were, Michigan has just, they've had these sort of, Mediocre good seasons that you wouldn't really expect from such a high powered blue blood organization. But ever since Jim Harbaugh took over and frankly in the 21st century, they have not managed to found really solid success. And now they're at a point where they can finally make a college football playoff, a meaningful game for them to be played in January. And I got to say, for such a powerful organization, I'm kind of happy to see that because, you know, when you have an organization that has not won a national championship since 1997, you want to see them have success. But with the power that Michigan football has in just in the United States in general, I'm very excited to see that if they beat Iowa next weekend, they're gonna be in the playoff as a very high-ranking seed. They're likely going to beat the two, unless we sort of see as something different in Georgia, Alabama, but we're gonna to get to the Iron Bowl in a little bit. But just in terms of the highlights from the Michigan-Ohio State game, I mean, you had an an, an offense that was so high-powered. I mean, you had Cade uh, McNamara. really, you know, I, I don't think he was the star, but I think he showed a very solid performance that we hadn't seen throughout him the whole year. Aiden Hutchinson on the defensive side of the ball, Dominating, and of course, the real star, Hassan Haskins, with five touchdowns. I mean, it reminded me of sort of Jonathan Taylor's performance last week in the uh, a couple of weeks ago in the NFL, where he pulled out five TDs. I mean, Ohio State couldn't stop him on the on the um, on the ground. I mean, he's a he's a senior, so I mean, he's not necessarily being you know he hasn't really had a chance to you know really show it at this point. I mean, he's sort of been in the background for Michigan football, but now. This is sort of the year where he sort of had a breakout campaign, and I was really excited to see him have so much success against uh, against Ohio State this week. So very excited to see that. Now we're set up for a weekend where Michigan's going to have to deal with Iowa, who was ranked very highly at the, to- at the uh, once they were on that undefeated run, but obviously once they got to one loss, they sort of fell off the table and then they lost another, and it sort of became a little bit different. But I got to say, I mean, in terms of – Big Ten football. Can we say they're back? I don't know. I mean, it, it's – Michigan football is sort of like – I think that's what's kind of been holding the Big Ten back a little bit because when you have such a high, powerful – a powerful organization that doesn't have success when you're such a major conference, it holds the conference back in terms of its success. And, you know, you have Ohio State doing well over the last few years. You have, even Michigan State has had some very good runs back in the old days with, uh, you know, uh, just in back in the last five or ten years or so. And, I mean, they've had runs where they've gotten into the top five. But never managed to close it out And you know what I think if you have a Michigan team That can have success I think you can sort of Resolidify the Big Ten as a top As one of the top conferences I know they are, they are still I can't really argue otherwise But it's almost as if you know They sort of took a back seat After, you know, the runs of Alabama and Clemson over the last five or six years or so, they've been sort of relegated to the background because, you know, Ohio State hasn't had a really great run since uh, Zeke Elliott. And, you know, you have Michigan who hasn't made it. Michigan State barely snuck in a few one time. Uh, It's interesting to see how now they're more prevalent now. And I'm really excited to see that. But let's turn now to the Iron Bowl, which... First off, I mean it's the most. I would argue, is it the most historic rivalry in college football? Possibly. I mean, Michigan Ohio State definitely gives it a run for its money. I mean, if you really want to go back, Harvard Yale, but I don't know if I qualify that. But um, I would say just the game itself for a first overtime. It was the first overtime game in Iron Bowl history. Now, just in terms of you know the hundred year history of the game, I mean you'd think it would make it there once, but it didn't, and. In this one, you had a situation where Auburn is without their starting quarterback. They're relying on a uh, probably an injured backup. You saw his uh, left uh, his left ankle there. I mean, it was it was tougher to move around. I mean, it was I was concerned just in terms of as uh, watching Alabama football. I mean, if you see a performance like that against the team where you have TJ Finley, who looks like he's lost or not lost, but hobbling out there and an Alabama offense that isn't able to get anything going until the end of the game. I mean, Bryce Young, it was his worst performance throughout the entire season. Now, granted, he's faced better teams, but Still, this is kind of shocking for for a top Heisman candidate. It's uh, concerning, to say the least, if you're an Alabama fan. I mean, now you're going up against Georgia next week, who is certainly going to be even more difficult to deal with. And I got to figure, you know, if this is what's coming to the table from, you know, from Auburn or from Alabama's perspective, I mean, I'm concerned. I am legitimately concerned that... This is going to be a quick exit or even, and I think the real question is, well, we're going to get into that with Mr. Spencer Pierce when he joins us in a little bit. But I think the real question is, if they lose two games, do they still get in? And, you know, I think a lot of fans out there want to see Cincinnati in there. I really do. Because, you know, when when you have an undefeated team from a lower power conference, um, I think it speaks to the whole idea that, you know the committee itself they don't look at these teams very favorably and when you have a 12 or 11 and 0 cincinnati team who hasn't played any high power teams People are interested. People are excited to see that team go up against the one seed because, you know, you wonder is that really are they really going to lose that badly? Are they going to get blown out? Is it going to be a close game? And I think if it's a close game, it gives lower power conferences that sort of prestige that they've been looking for. I mean, Notre Dame gets blown out. UCF doesn't even make it, and now you have a Cincinnati team who's going to be in there. I think. I mean, they will be a four. They're probably going to play Georgia if Georgia wins, and I would say that. It's, it's going to be interesting. Well, let's just leave it at that. It's going to be interesting. I don't necessarily think that it's going to be a close game if we get to that point. But just in terms of how Cincinnati has managed to sneak its way into the four spot, I'm excited to see what that will bring. But um, definitely going to be exciting. College football, we haven't really discussed it a lot on the show, but I'm really excited that I got to get into it today because... Just in terms of how great a weekend this was, this almost felt like a playoff weekend, even though obviously it wasn't. But these two games, the whole Michigan, Ohio State and Alabama Auburn game, these rivalry games haven't felt so significant in such a long time. And I know the Alabama Auburn game wasn't supposed to be significant when, you know, when you went into 330, you're thinking it's gonna be a blowout. Alabama's favored by almost three touchdowns. And you know what? Because it wasn't a blowout, I was very excited to watch it. But Let's turn our attention away from college football and move now to the NFL, where this week you had, I don't want to say that you had anything, you know, really special to write home about. I think you had some good games or so, and, you know, I think, well, I'm going to start with the Thanksgiving slate because, you know, you had three on Thursday, and you had a Bears team who almost, almost decided to give the Detroit Lions their first win of the season, and, you know, if you pull out a uh, game-winning field goal, obviously, but... You know what? It's it's concerning if you're a Bears fan to see that you're squeaking out against the Lions. But I mean, and you're also obviously, I think a lot of Bears fans are thinking about whether Matt Nagy is going to stay as their head coach. And I don't know if they're going to um, if they're going to keep in that direction. It looks like I think I personally think he's going to go. But I think. If you're a Chicago Bears fan, you're questioning the legitimacy of the Justin Fields pick. Just, I obviously he didn't play. I know Andy Dalton was the quarterback there, but I mean, when you have sort of, if you're in a position where you're at this, in the home stretch of your season and your number one draft pick isn't playing at quarterback, I personally value that as either A, it's an injury issue, which it is, but I also feel like when you're in positions like that, it's hard for me to not say that the quarterback is being tested in terms of how the fans perceive him. And not being on the field is automatically the number one concern. So obviously Chicago did pull it out and they went to four and seven. But I think the great game on Thanksgiving was really Vegas against the Cowboys. I mean, you had a situation where... The last, the, the potential winning field goal has to be attempted three times, which, I mean, hey, third time's a charm. What are you, what are you going to do? But just the sloppiness of the play throughout the game, the penalties were flying all over the place. I mean, it was, I would say, in, I believe in thanks, I don't know if they mentioned this in the broadcast, but in Thanksgiving history, it was, in terms of total penalty yards, it was among the highest of all time. And, you know, with two teams in this case who really are, I would say, among the better teams in each respective conference. I mean, Vegas, I know, obviously, they've had internal struggles and Dallas, of course, I think is going to run away with the NFC East. But these are teams where you'd think that both on the offensive side of the ball and the defensive side of the ball, they'd have really a sense of control over their offenses. But even with such an experienced coach like Mark McCarthy on the Dallas end, I mean, you're heavily reliant on Dak Presley. They're heavily line on Dak Prescott in the game. I mean, it was one of his higher passing yard days. He had 375. Uh, The running game kind of shut down, but really, the, the story for me in terms of the game was the penalties. And, you know, when you have such sloppy play on both ends of the ball, it really speaks to, A, a bad football game, but, B, a surprise in maybe how teams like Vegas and Dallas will likely make the playoffs in their respective conferences. But I think a more polished team in each of those leagues maybe. It's hard to say if there's an AFC team that's really polished. It's amazing how maybe even New England looks like that polished team. And we're going to get to that when we get to the Sunday slate. But I think if they go up against these teams against a Vegas or a Dallas in the first round, I think there's potential for early exits for both of these teams. I mean, Dallas has yet to show a postseason pedigree with this Dak Prescott Zeke core i mean in every instance of the word they have yet to be able to move past teams like new orleans or move past the green bay or a um if you want to go further back a seattle team but i think that if you look at their first round potentiality here i mean dallas is going to be one of the top four seeds just because obviously they're in a division that's that's horrible and if if we're really looking at who they're going to play i mean I believe right now, if you look at sort of the league standings, I mean, as a 7-4 and four team, I mean, Arizona's ahead of them, Green Bay's ahead of them, Tampa Bay's ahead of them. They're going to be the four. And if you're the four seed in the NFC, you've got to be concerned because you're going to have to face possibly L.A., maybe San Francisco, and... Even, you know, I think I think a lot of people don't look at Minnesota too favorably or Atlanta too favorably. Or even, as I've said, I still have a little faith in, the, in that Giants team. Maybe if they go on a run, even the Bears team, maybe if they go on a run. But I think if you're Dallas, you have to wonder, if you play a good five-seed team, you, you could e- I could easily see an early exit. I know they're going to have on field. But I, I think L.A. definitely serves as a tough matchup for them. I know you've had sort of the... Uh, The history there, Uh, I don't think they've played each other this season, but uh, Stafford leading this team very successfully in such a high-powered offense. If Dallas can't put it together on defense, then L.A. could run all over them. And I still think, obviously, I would say Aaron Donald's the best defensive player in the league. And if he can manage to break through the Dallas offensive line, which is solid, I would say, I think it'll be interesting to see if they take an early exit. But that's really the Thursday slate. I think Buffalo, you know, they ran over New Orleans. Um, I think it just speaks to whole – you have Trevor Simeon back there. It's a sad state of affairs, but Josh Allen's going to take advantage of a mediocre New Orleans defense, and Trevor Simeon is not ready to pilot an NFL team. So it really puts the Saints in a difficult position. But turning out to the Sunday slate, uh, I would say, you know – you had, I think there are a couple storylines to focus on here. One, New England is not a pretender. New England is going to be, they could easily win the AFC East. I st- I'm sticking with the Buffalo prediction. I think New England is could easily face a five seed uh, just in terms of, you know, Buffalo's pedigree. I think they're probably, on paper, the better team. I think, obviously, New England, you had the better coaching, but... You know they're developing. New England is a developing team with momentum, and developing teams with momentum's are the teams that that scare everybody in the postseason. I mean, if you go back to runs where the first Seattle run, you know, the first time they made that Super Bowl push, you know, if you remember in the NFC Championship game against uh, San Francisco, the Richard Sherman play, you know, that was that first time people really saw the Seahawks as sort of like this possible dynasty and. I don't want to say, like, New England's a dynasty or anything like that. There's a lot of question marks out there. I think their defense still has concerns. I think we still don't know if Mac Jones is going to be, you know, this phenomenal quarterback. He's a good quarterback, but we don't know if he's phenomenal. There's still some questions on the running side of the game. But as a whole, they put together a solid performance every time out there. And, you know, I think the question was, when you went into this game against Tennessee this weekend, can New England beat a formidable Opponent. And, you know, I don't know if Cleveland counts as a formidable opponent or even someone like uh, uh, L.A. or the Chargers, when well, I mean L.A. Um, I know they beat them by three, but they were always close. I mean, they lost to Dallas in overtime. They lost to Tampa Bay by two. And now, you know, you have a tough slate. Now you're deciding you got to pull something out against a good team like Tennessee. And they did. They won by 23 when they weren't even favored. And just to speak to the whole performance of, well, Mac Jones was able to effectively pick apart the Tennessee secondary. I mean, he targeted, he made some good passes uh, throughout the game to a mediocre receiving core. I mean, Who's their best receiver? Nelson Aguilar. I mean, it, I mean, I know he didn't. Uh, Jacoby Myers. It's it's tricky to say whether or not he has a great receiving core. And personally, from that standpoint, I I applaud his efforts. And more than that, I applaud Bill Belichick for getting the monkey off his back because you know, you just know everybody's going to go after him just because of his pedigree and the loss of Brady, Tom Brady, and Bill Belichick are will forever be linked in in a historical context. It's easy to see that they are essentially the sort of the I would say the biggest or most notable quarterback to head coach pair in NFL history. And now with them separated and still Brady performing to almost peak level and not not peak level i'm sorry i would say good level he's doing for a 45 year old it's remarkable and now you know you have a patriots team that's rebuilding and they're eight and four now you have to you have to give bill belichick credit and if you don't you're crazy it's everyone jumped. Uh, everyone was willing to say after last season with Cam Newton that the Patriots were finished. It was done over. There was nothing that could possibly indicate that Bill Belichick could turn the team around, and it was essentially all Brady and all that. But I think if people actually realized how to stick with a head coach, I think people don't understand the value that these guys have. And the value that Bill Belichick had to the organization was essentially thrown aside by many fans out there. And I think it's. It's crazy to think that anyone could even do that, but they did. And I'm happy to say that I think fans are realizing how Bill Belichick fits into this Patriots organization. I think there's so much drama around the team that it gets lost in the fire a little bit. He's the greatest head coach in NFL history, bar none. And I know there are arguments out there for guys like Lombardi or Tom Landry or Bill Walsh, but in the modern age, Bill Belichick, well, I'll say this. If Bill can prove a deep playoff run here with this New England team, uh, I this guy's there's there's no argument that you could possibly say if you can do it without your big star. I think that is sort of the the idea of you know that Bill Belichick could be disparaged in any sense of the word is beyond remarkable to me. But great win for New England. We're going to have to see how going forward, I know you've got two big games against Buffalo coming up and, of course, going out to Indianapolis uh, on a Saturday game, which is a little bit unusual. We'll have to see how the Monday to Saturday changeover affects them. But we'll certainly see how that could be an interesting factor. But turning over to the other games in the NFL slate this weekend, I really think that you had... The 4 o'clock game with uh, L.A. and Green Bay. I think that was the other one that stood out here. Um, You know, the whole thing with the toe with Aaron Rodgers. And I think just because, you know, he waved in front of the camera or whatever. And, you know, people were obviously thinking about, oh, he's going to be good for the game. Well, obviously, it was all sort of ho-hum. He's fine. And, you know, I noticed when I was watching that the way that Rodgers is able to lead his receivers is... I would say puts him among a an elite class of today's quarterbacks, obviously. But I think just in terms of how when quarterbacks get older, they're sort of seen as sort of like weapons that aren't necessarily as effective. Rodgers is trying to pull off a Tom Brady here. He's trying to prove that with these effective weapons behind him, and plus, you know, aging and sort of being—he's been around. When I say old, I mean like anyone who was around in the NFL before I turned seven or eight years old. To me, that's, that's an older player. And that and Rodgers, he came around in, 0, in 08 out of Cal. And, you know, he is still proving time in and time out that he is able to be an effective, you know, tar, uh, he's effective at reaching any of his receivers out there um, in terms of just... I mean, I know he has effective weapons at Devali Adams, but I know Randall Cobb came out later in the game. Uh, you have a good running back, Courtney, A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones, but Rodgers is still able to effectively lead a Green Bay offense and not just make them a contender, but arguably the favorite in the NFC. I don't think Arizona can be seen as the favorite at this point. I know they were off to a hot start and they probably have a more potent, you know, high power offense just in terms of, you know, they're younger, they're able to move around effectively, but I really believe that You have a Green Bay team who is arguably going to be the one seed. I don't know if Arizona will keep up the pace to stay up there. But if they're going to be the one seed, they'll have a good path to the postseason. Uh, And I really think that it'll be interesting to see if they can get that first round by and whether or not that's going to be effective in leading them to a deep run run from in a super bowl berth which we obviously haven't seen since 45 against green against uh, pittsburgh about almost 10 years ago pretty remarkable aaron Rodgers has not been to a super bowl in 10 years so we're gonna have to see obviously if that takes into a hold and of course last night we had the monday night game seattle washington not necessarily not necessarily a great game i mean if you're fine well First off, any game that ends in a final of 17 to 15, uh, there's a lot of questions out there just in terms of, you know, how how are these offenses able to even muster points? I mean, if you look at the first half, if you look at the first half, I mean, it's kind of pathetic just to look at the drives. I mean, Seattle scored early, but I mean, you had uh, just punt, 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 fumble, punt field goal punt i mean it was just a slow stretch and you know with russell wilson back you would have thought seattle maybe would have retained a little bit of momentum but they just sort of fallen off and i think now the reality is sort of setting in that they're in a rebuild and i don't know if seattle fans want to admit that just because of you know how powerful they were over the last five or six years or so but now that they're in a position where they're gonna have to You know, get a maybe a top twelve draft pick. I mean, it's it's amazing to imagine that. And in my lifetime, I mean, not my entire lifetime, but ever since you know the beginning of the twenty tens, they were always top tier i mean ever since ever since they got russell wilson there has really not been a really bad year there's no, never been a season where i could look at seattle and say they're out of it and now i would say they are i mean they're three and eight this is this is over you know i mean in you're losing to washington who is now in the playoff picture in the NFC, mind you and if you look at sort of the draft order coming up it's. I mean, obviously, you have your standards. You have your Jets, you have your Giants, you have your Texans, you have your Jaguars. And now Seattle's fallen in there, which is pretty remarkable. But also, just a thing to point out in the draft order, the Giants, the Jets, and the Eagles all have six of the first top ten picks. And I mean, if you're a fan of football in the Northeast, like obviously many of our listeners are— I think you got to wonder, I mean, this is the potential for one of those three teams. If you're looking at the 2022 season, this has a potential to be a major game changer of a draft. I mean, it's rare you get teams with two first round picks in the first 10 with two with two top 10 first round picks. But now, I mean, if you're putting that into context of. Three teams with that opportunity, at least one of them can easily propel themselves, if they pick correctly, to being a division contender, wildcard contender. I don't know necessarily in the Jets' case. I still think there are so many issues with the team that even two big first-rounders won't do anything. But I think the Giants and the Eagles are way more... Accessible to these big changes. And I think if both teams are able to effectively, I think, well, we'll start in the Giants case. I think if the Giants can effectively get a good pass rusher plus a versatile offensive weapon, I feel like they could easily propel themselves to a team that can reach or get above 500 and sneak in with a wild card spot. I don't know if they can really tackle a team like Dallas just yet. But I also think in Philadelphia, it's almost the exact same thing. I think if you can also get a versatile offensive weapon, I think in the Eagles case, it's more secondary concerns, I think the Giants are kind of set with Xavier McKinney and James Bradbury, but I think in Philadelphia's uh, in Philadelphia's context I think that if they look more towards the secondary and then another offensive weapon again same thing easily a wild card contender in an NFC that isn't necessarily that powerful I mean you have two five and six teams that are in the playoffs as your six and your seven so obviously we're gonna have to look towards that but as we wrap up our monologue here we're gonna move to baseball now to wrap things up before we get to our guest Spencer Pierce and with the lockout, come well, we're not going to say it's official yet, but the lockout is drawing near. We're a couple days away. Teams are willing to spend and spend big. The biggest names in free agency... Off the board before December 1st, very rare to see in the modern age when when I would say many of the game's biggest players always tug and tug and wait till February to get their names off the board. But now you have Scherzer and Seager gone. Scherzer, a Met three years, $130 million. Seager to the Rangers for 10 years and 325. This is the... If you're a baseball fan, hot stove. The hot stove has never been hotter, and I person, you know, personally, you know, I'm worried about the lockout. I'm worried if they're going to be able to play in on April 1st or spring training for that matter. But in terms of just the context of you know off season news, this is how. What more could you want as a baseball fan? You have, I think. Teams like the Mets, who have really shown that they... Well, they're the big... The Mets in Texas have been the biggest... The Mets in Texas have been the biggest spenders. You have the Mets spending on Mark Canha, Starling Marte... Max Scherzer, they are willing to go all... They're going all in. They're rebuilding their outfield and adding another, gron, uh, another arm to back up Jacob deGrom after losing Noah Syndergaard. And in terms of Texas, you've rebuilt your middle infield with arguably a top five shortstop and, well, two top five shortstops last year. I mean, Semyon was more of a second baseman. I still think he's a shortstop by trade but he is playing second base obviously for texas because there's no way seager's moving so it's going to be i would say the best middle infield pairing in major league baseball you can make some arguments on other ends of the ward, but i really feel as though texas has put themselves in a position to contend in the al west i think now seattle also uh, you didn't realize robbie ray the al cy young award winner goes to the mariners for five years on 115 million dollars and When you're a defending AL Cy Young Award winner, you're automatically going to demand attention. And I think Ray, with his high strikeouts you know that really sort of sold seattle as we need an effective weapon out of the rotation to give us 200 innings and robbie ray was probably the best option for them he wasn't going to demand as much as someone like a scherzer in terms of annual value i know scherzer's a ridiculous 40 million out of the gate per year for the mets but uh with robbie ray i mean it's a lot it's a 20 million dollar cut for the defending cy young award winner and you know, I know we don't know if this is going to be, if he's going to retain this kind of performance. We've yet to see it. Scherzer, uh, Scherzer demands a pedigree. He has multiple Cy Young awards. He's a, argue, he will be a first ballot Hall of Famer. It's okay to imagine him getting this kind of value. Robbie Ray, not so much. But it'll be interesting to see whether or not the West is as competitive as we think it's going to be. You have the Angels, Astros, Mariners, and Rangers all making pretty big moves. And it sort of leaves Oakland out in the dust, which is kind of sad to see. I would have liked to have seen Oakland do something, but I just feel like, you know, in terms of contending for large amounts of these large salaries, Oakland's kind of left in the back. They have to work with what they have. If you've seen Moneyball, you know how it works there. I mean, they are the last to the bowl. I mean, this is, this is how they build their teams and it's worked. But now you have these big spenders coming in and making it a four, four, I would say the Angels, Astros, Mariners, and Rangers are, I would say, in the top 10 each for spending. I mean, I wouldn't say the Astros necessarily are big spenders, just I know they've gotten Hector Norris. Um, they're going to let go of Correa, but they're willing to make moves this offseason. All four of the teams are. And now at least Oakland sort of in the background. But I'll be interested to see if, um, if one, if Texas, after being this last-place team, with these two acquisitions, can become this you 85-91 know, team. And I don't know... Even though they acquired John Gray as well on the pitching side, there are still a lot of questions there that I don't know if signing these two big bats is going to address. Um, In terms of the Angels, they've always been a question. We don't know if Otani's going to play a full season. Um, And you know what? Uh, You have Mike Trout coming back, obviously. Uh, That's going to make the Angels good, but is it enough for the playoffs? We don't know. And Seattle, I know, great season, but is it sustainable? We don't know. And, you know, Houston, they're probably going to lose Correa. And that's a big force. I mean, I know you keep Altuve, you keep Bregman, you have most of your bullpen weapons coming back. Um, It's a concern. I mean, I would say that um, if you're looking at the West right now and you're making a prediction, I would say odds wise, it's pretty much a coin flip. I mean, it's there I, I would say the Astros are probably still the favorite by a little bit, but there are three teams out there who could all make the wild card game. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And I think we turn our attention from the west to the east now where you have the Blue Jays making a big splash signing Kevin Gosman. And, you know, Gosman was hurt a lot during the year, but when he was out there for the Giants, untouchable. Arguably one of the best splitters in Major League Baseball. I know that, obviously, Otani demands more attention just because of the marquee value, but Gosman, just effective spin rate, oh, garners tons of strikeouts in a very tough division. I think it's a great signing for Toronto in a especially competitive division. The Rays continue to make moves signing, you know, moves to their bullpen i mean every time the rays make a move you always wonder is that guy going to be beating the yankees in the postseason and it always kind of works out that way i know they uh they just signed brooks raley a very unknown lefty um you know two and three four point five era nothing to write home about but anytime these kinds of hard throwing relievers go to tampa bay they always seem to find success it's remarkable and you know when if you're the yankees i know our our yankee fans out there are concerned what are they doing are they sitting are they sitting on their butts at home or Is Hal are Hal and Brian Cashman twiddling their thumbs and wondering you know what's happening everybody is leaving us uh, not everybody's leaving us excuse me but everybody that we wanted to go after is going off the board relatively quickly and you know if the if the lockout is coming in two days they have to do something and now that Correa is probably and story I know they said they were out on story but I'm not convinced of that um if Correa is the last big name shortstop on the board, I would gotta figure he's going to the Yankees. I mean, we didn't touch on it, but Javi Baez signs a six-year deal last night with the Tigers. And, you know, the Tigers, I would say, were the name that was most associated with Carlos Correa. And now that you have him off, Baez off the board, you know, not, he didn't resign with the Mets. He went to Detroit. And now you have Correa and Story left. And if you're the Yankees and your fan base is clamoring for you to make a big move, well, this is it this is it folks this you have to sign do you have to sign him yeah I think you do I mean if you don't what are you left with are you left with signing Andrelton Simmons to a deal are you left with you know going with the minor league system going with a guy like Volpe or Peraza these guys I don't think are ready yet and if you're will, if you are saying you're gonna make a big move this is it and if you're not well then you're sort of admitting defeat Toronto and Tampa, and even Boston for that matter, who surprised us all this season. I think at this point, the Yankees have fallen to sort of a maybe wild card team, but not a division winner. And it's amazing to say that because last year they were odds on division winner favorites and now if you're not doing anything you're in limbo you're not you're not pressing you're not you're not going after the big name and i don't want to panic i i think it's unfair to panic with the yankees they're still a great team this is a team that could easily win 90 games but if you're saying you're gonna make big moves and you're not That's a problem, and you're going to alienate a lot of fans that way. I mean, a lot of hype around the Matt Olsons of the world. They said they're going to trade for him, maybe re-sign Anthony Rizzo, go after Correa, go after Trevor Story, go after a pitcher. And, I mean, Cashman recently, he doesn't go after pitchers. It's remarkable. I mean, it's the pitching of the Yankees in the last few years or so has been always questionable. I mean, I know we signed... Obviously, signing Garrett Cole was huge. He got, I mean, a great... A very good season this year. I know, obviously, not a great wildcard performance. And I think a lot of people, you know, were like, "Why wow, he didn't do it for us. But... You can't argue his skill level. He's the best pitcher on that roster. And I think that in terms of the success that he can bring to this team, bar none, best pitcher, you need him. But you need something around that. And I mean, with a lot of questions surrounding Severino returning to the table, is he going to be as good as he was back in 2018? We don't know. And you also have guys like Luis Gil and uh, and Jamison Tyone and Domingo Herman, And you have these names where it's like there's always huge upside, but... Every year, the upside is never really fulfilled. It's maybe fulfilled for one of the three guys, but never the whole slate. And I know you have a dependable lefty out there in Jordan Montgomery as well, but you also have a bullpen that clearly needs to be addressed. Chapman is not the big game closer that we need. I mean, it's it's sad to see how... The, that smile that, you know, if you, watched, if you watched the ALCS in 2019 or the ALDS in 2020 or, you know, any moment where Chapman has given up a big home run, there's that sort of look he has on his face that as a Yankee fan, you're sort of melting into your couch or chair or wherever wherever you're sitting. And you're wondering what has happened to this god of a left-handed pitcher who you could argue is a top five all-time left-handed reliever. I mean, there's Billy Wagner, obviously but John Franco, a few other assorted names out there. But I would say Chapman definitely fits into that category, and he certainly won't make the Hall of Fame based on his you know, his history with the law. But he's a dominant pitcher, and he's not really the same as he was five years ago. I mean, it's, it's frightening to see because if this is the guy you're turning to in these big moments, I'm concerned. And I think a lot of Yankee fans echo that sentiment because – If you're going to the postseason, you need a dependable bullpen. And, you know, you had Chad Green, who was questionable this year. Lots of moments where he, you know, I think the biggest one everyone focuses on was the game where he blows the huge lead against the Astros in the middle of the season uh, right before the All-Star break. That was really concerning. Um, And then you'd also have sort of these assorted arms that you don't know if they're going to be successful. I mean, Loisaka really proved a lot this year, but it's only one year. We don't know. I think he's, I would say... Could he be our closer next year? It's not out of the question. I know Chapman sort of demands that sort of he's the closer. He's that guy. But with the Weisaker's performance last year, I could see him being the closer, honestly. And I think there are also some younger guys, too. I really like Stephen Ridings. Um, uh, tall, right-handed arm. Absolute cheddar off the mound. I mean, he's throwing 100 miles an hour. Great stuff. I know he's young. He's got some control issues to work out. But I think, you know, if you compare him to a guy like, I don't know, uh, Nick Nelson, maybe. I know Nelson, a lot of concerns, already been shipped out already. But Ridings has more more control over his dominant stuff than Nelson had. And I think he could easily be a formidable threat in a seventh-inning role in this season because... I don't know if Chad Green's that same guy. We don't know if Chapman's that same guy. And if you're looking for solutions to the problem and you're not going to be signing anybody, you got to look towards your farm system. And I think riding sort of fits that idea as sort of a hard-throwing right-hander that can really throw good stuff out there. And I think you also, I think a lot of people forget, you still have Lucas Litke, you still have Nestor Cortez, and those guys were great last year. I mean, in a year where the big stars in the bullpen did not produce to their adequate levels— They really stepped up. They looked promising. They had, I mean, Nestor Cortez had just wicked control over his stuff. He managed to fade in different deliveries. Litke, very similar, sort of this sort of three-fourths arm slot. Great break on that off-speed stuff and the ability to, even with their low-velocity numbers, I mean, Litke sits 91-92, Cortez even lower, 88-89, a relic in today's game. But they're still managing to get out, keep their ERA and FIPs low. And I think that sort of speaks to how they are able to effectively utilize the strike zone and be formidable threats from the left side out of the bullpen. And I think in a division so competitive as the AL East, the, those guys are going to be the key. If they can maintain their success last year, I think the Yankees have some potential with that with sort of breaking through on that market. I think that I think the Yankees are worth moving forward with if they're sort of the content the, the people that brought to the table these sort of surprising seasons if they can stay forward and sort of manage these repeat success seasons i think that even if they don't make the necessary moves that they need to they're still going to be a good wild card contender if if and only if the guys that broke out last year continue that and if you notice go back the last few years there's always a breakout campaign every single season but they aren't necessarily consistent. I think Gio is maybe the only exception. Gio broke out out of nowhere. Great power, great defense, arguably a top eight third baseman in Major League Baseball. Going to be, I think, going to stick with this team if the Yankees aren't making big moves. If they are, If they are going to make big moves, I think he might go. But if they aren't, he'll stay and I would say be a great threat on the left side of the infield. And, you know, he was a breakout campaign star. But now... If that's your only breakout, you know, consistent success, who's left? I mean, you had Clint Frazier, who had a great campaign a few years ago, but didn't maintain that kind of success. You have Aaron Hicks coming back from an injury. Again, had a good season a few years before. Don't know if he can maintain that consistency. Uh, Luke Voigt, led the league at home runs in 2020, couldn't stay on the field in 2021. There are so many concerns out there with this organization that I feel as though, if you're going into this season as a Yankee fan, you got to be at least, I would say, your wi- the wild card has become the goal, not the championship. And it's sad to see that the Yankee organization has gotten to this point, and I'm worried as a fan. But on the other side of the ball, if you look at Queens, as we wrap up here before we go to our guest, I think if you look at it in terms of sort of the whole uh, no manager and still signing Max Scherzer I think that that's pretty remarkable to see that Steve Cohen has demanded this sort of attention for the Mets. And I think that if you're in New York right now, the edge goes to the Mets. And it's a sad statement when at any time when you say that kind of thing. But if that's the point there, I, I don't know. It's pretty remarkable to see it that way. But we have a guest to get to, uh, and it's going to be Spencer Pierce. He's going to be talking college football, college basketball with us today. We'll be right back after the break. Joining us next, Spencer Pierce. We'll be right back. going to be joining us today we're going to be talking college sports as we addressed earlier in the show spence how are you doing my man
1: ian i'm thrilled to be here my man thanks for
0: having me on well spence i'm just going to jump right into it you know uh i would say in terms of you know college football this weekend probably one of the most exciting weekends of football i would say in the last couple years you know you had ohio state michigan you had the iron Bowl, four overtimes first overtime game in the historic rivalry Give me your thoughts, you know, as you were watching, what caught your eye out there? What, you know, stood out to you as sort of things we're going to be looking at going forward?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, first things first. I mean, you look at that Alabama game, and, you know, they still got it. Everyone kind of counts them out. Everyone says, you know, it's a a, a one-loss team. It doesn't really matter. Nick Saban is Nick Saban. You know, we kind of see the same thing with Bill Belichick all year, where it's like, a a great coach is a great coach for a reason Mm -hmm. and they're able to coach teams based on the performance they've given off for their entire career if that makes sense yeah and so that game was nuts but you kind of had a feeling when it was 10 to 3 in the fourth that it was almost more so in Alabama's favor than Auburn's
0: you know, in a lot of I, I completely agree with you there, and I feel like in a lot of cases, you know, these big powerhouse schools have developed this reputation because, you know, they're the blue bloods and they sort of have this way of because of their fantastic coaching, their way of coming back into that. And it's interesting you bring up these sort of powerhouse schools because it's interesting to see how the committee is looking at them. You know, you have Ohio State and Michigan essentially swapping places in the new AP poll and Alabama sort of holding the status quo. And, you know, you have a school like Cincinnati in there who, you know, they're the four and, you know, they're undefeated. But do you think that, you know, do you think that a lot of pundits or media people out there view them unfavorably because they don't have that kind of experience?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's it's, it's a difficult question. And I might just kind of over override your question really quickly and just say like you know if a team like Cincinnati gets in which I think that they're absolutely going to and they get blown out then that sets back teams like that for years Mm, mm. like years and years and it's different because you know you look at a team like Notre Dame that has all the pedigree in the world And they've been to the college football playoff and they've gotten killed they've gotten blown out and it doesn't stop them from getting back in because of the brand because it's notre dame Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and you look at a team like cincinnati that's kind of a representative of you know a kind of last year they were a little worse but coastal carolina or a Mm -hmm. team like byu that doesn't have that big brand but you know like i said if cincinnati gets in and they get clobbered then that sets back Smaller teams for a very long time coming.
0: Yeah, and, and you know we've had experience. You've said you know we talked about a lot of this uh, last year. Coastal Carolina, great run, didn't really you know get the whole recognition. They finished outside the top uh, top ten, I believe. But do you? Th- uh, I think you know a good comparison is maybe UCF, Central Florida. I think a lot of mm-hmm. fa- uh, I think a lot of fans out there would really like to see schools like that get their shot. And, you know, I want to, you know, coming from, you know, you come from a, a school that isn't necessarily known for football. But in terms of the impact, well, you know, unfortunately, you know, it's a, it's a basketball school. Let's be honest here But, you know. And even so. Yeah. I, I, it's, <laughs> it's interesting that you, when you think about it, it's, I'm curious to know from a school perspective, you know, you're coming from that sort of. Do you think that it impacts the school significantly? You know, in terms of in terms of like you know the impact on the program, the school itself. How do you think people like that see a fantastic performance? Is it really notable even if they get clobbered? What do you think the impacts are there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when it's it's difficult to speak from my perspective because Syracuse football is you know a bunch of idiots running <laughs> around with on their helmets, <laughs> um, so that's tough. But I mean. I'll take I'll take us into account like they were supposed to Syracuse was supposed to win two games this year and mm-hmm. they doubled that and more they won five um, and you know every every game the the student attendance was bigger and bigger and really the wow. Clemson game the the Clemson game there were three overflow sections wow and it was the biggest student football crowd they've ever had Wow. And so you look at you know not even so much the team but a guy like Sean Tucker that was in Heisman talks for a while right um, you know, an exciting player can bring so much to a school and a community, and I think that you know, you look at a team like Cincinnati. It, that's a huge. That's a huge uh, uh, way to kind of um, rally around uh, uh, something like that because you know now Ohio State that doesn't have a chance to get into the playoff, mm-hmm. all those Ohioans or <laughs> whatever you call them out there. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah.
1: They have another team that they can root for, and right. it's kind of like. A uh, uh, kind of like I um, I don't know, just kind of a root by association. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it's it's good it's good for these small schools, but
0: mm-hmm. you know, I
1: hate to be a pessimist, but like I said already, they get in, they don't, and they lose the the football the college football committee is going to hear it for a very long
0: time. Yeah, and you know what? It's There's a, such a double standard in there, you know, with fans pushing them, and then, you know, if they get blown out, it's a bad look for them. So definitely going to be a lot to watch as we go into championship weekend. You know, you have Georgia-Alabama, you know, you got Michigan-Iowa. Uh, of the big slate going into championship weekend, is there anything that catches your eye sort of as something to watch? Or is there something, you know— uh, in terms of some of the games, maybe the ACC championship game, Big Ten or Big Twelve. Actually, I think Baylor Oklahoma State going to be very exciting as well. But in terms of you know the big the Big Five and the, the Power Five conferences of those five games, which one stands out to you as the most exciting to watch? What are we really looking for out there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I hate to hammer it into the ground, but I think you know you look at Georgia Alabama and all their history, and you, you can't say it's not that game. And you know, I'll pose a quick question to you. We'll have a, a quick maybe debate here depending on what you say sure sure yeah how how much or how little does alabama have to lose by to still get into the playoff because (laughs) my answer is if alabama loses by a touchdown or less they still can get into the playoff
0: you know i would personally say that if i i would say if they lose by a significant margin obviously they will not make it but i would say that that margin is a little bigger than you might think I would say even if it's a 10- or 14-point game, I think the Alabama... Whoa. Yeah, you know, it's a little controversial, but I'm thinking in terms of sort of the pedigree that they have. If it's a game where, you know games like this, where if it's in the fourth quarter and it's a tie right. game throughout the whole way through, and then suddenly Georgia puts up a 10 spot in the last five minutes or so, I think the committee will look at that still favorably. I think... It de- I think it really depends on sort of how the other games go, but if it if everything goes in Alabama's favor on whatever they can't control and they only lose by 10, I think there's a very good chance that they could possibly get that four spot out there.
1: Yeah, I think that's a pretty good point. Like, you look at, it kind of transcends the box score in that way where mm-hmm. if there's game momentum and, you know, it's a seven-point game and Georgia kind of hits a nail in the exactly Exactly,
0: the exactly, I yes. I think
1: that's a good point, but... You know if they're getting outplayed and it's a 10 14 then you know, yes absolutely that's I think that's a different story there's yeah no there's no chance that they can get it
0: I would you know what I completely agree with you there I think it, it sort of depends on how the game is played and also definitely in terms of how everything else plays out I think if you have upsets in the Big 12 I think if Baylor beats Oklahoma State if Iowa beats Michigan then the committee may not even have a choice but we're gonna have to that's, see
1: that's a good point. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, and we're gonna have to see. Definitely very exciting, but we're gonna turn our attention now to the second half to college basketball, which, you know, being up uh being up north, I'm sure it's a little bit more exciting for you there. But uh, I want, you know <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And you know, uh, you know, from our personal uh relationship, we of course, you know, you're a big Syracuse guy, a big Kansas guy as well. And whoa, yes. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, uh but we uh, we wanna talk a little bit here on sort of You know, last year was a bit different. You know, you had sort of a sort of one off kind of tournament. There were a lot of different factors that went into it. You had a game that, you know, was forfeited because of COVID reasons. I want to know, just in terms of the excitement surrounding March Madness, being, you know, fans of these big teams, what are you looking at just sort of like, what are you looking forward to about March Madness this year? Do you think, you know, Are fans looking at it as sort of like, this is the real tournament? Or is this sort of like, we're still not there yet? Is this sort of like, uh, still not really full back to college basketball like we've seen in the past?
1: Mm, Yeah, no, I think think I'm, I'm in for this year being the real deal. I mean, you look at last year's tournament with no fans, and, you know, it was a real tournament by all means. But when you don't really have, you know, fans in the stands and, you know, (laughs) <laughs> Jalen Suggs hits a crazy buzz, buzzer beater and yeah. looks to 3,500 cardboard cutouts. It's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, um, I think I'm all in this year. Yeah. it's It's got to be real. Um, every sport basically is back to how it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of excitement. I think this year more than ever, there's a lot of uh, top-heavy teams, yeah. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you look at the, the matchup we just had the other night, Duke and Zaga. Right. And, you know, obviously Purdue, Powerhouse, um, mm-hmm. Arkansas, Kentucky. Yeah, uh, it, It's going to be a lot of good teams at the top. But I think with that, there's a lot of parity, as always, in college basketball. Um, I mean, you look at uh, UC Davis lost to some art academy, like a private school yeah. art academy last yeah. night. And that's just kind of the way of, of college basketball. And that's why I think it's so highly rated on a lot of people's yeah. uh, minds just because there's so much parody and no one ever really knows what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's something that, you know, it captures people just because in terms of like, you know, when you compare it to pro in college, it's such a different game. And, you know, I think fans really are attracted to that whole underdog aspect, but let's turn our attention now to the ACC and I want to know. First, I want you to know. I want you to uh, talk about your outlook on Syracuse basketball this year. You know, you have sort of the Buddy Beheim uh, sort of. I think he's the marquee name that people sort of uh, are attached to the brand right now. Uh, but I want to hear your thoughts because it's such a competitive conference. What stands out to you both in the Syracuse program and what they're going to have to deal with in terms of, I would say, the best Duke team since maybe 2018, 2017. But let me hear your thoughts
1: yeah i mean i'm 100 agree with in agreement with you there um taking into uh syracuse into account they uh you know it's been up and down so far you, you lose a game to colgate for the first time since <laughs> yeah 1962 or whatever it was so that's that's uh, not so thrilling um and then they went to atlantis and showed that they can't really hang with the big guys mm. um and that's just kind of an issue the like you know, I said the big guys as in big teams, but yes. that's kind of the, the the issue of the team is that Jesse Edwards is kind of the only operating big right now. Mm. Um, Brahma Sidibe has been on and off her for two years. Uh, they just have no sides at all. Mm. And Edwards and Sidibe, when he comes back, they're they're twigs. Mm. Like, they're going to get bodied uh, in ACC play. And, you know, if you, if you ever – uh, live by the say uh, the saying, live by the three, die by the three. Mm-hmm. Then this is the season for you to watch Syracuse basketball because. Yeah. They will shoot the lights out or they're going to build a house of bricks every time on the court. Just because because they have no inside presence.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because, you know, last week we had on Zach Carson who talked a lot about analytics and sort of how the three has come to dominate the NBA. And, you know, what you're seeing with Syracuse, you have a lot of dominant guards who are sort of carrying the scoring for them. And as you said, you know, it's very dependent on that. And I think a lot of NBA teams are built that way. So I'll pose the question to you. In terms of the college game, are teams, are teams able to be successful even if they are built around the three? I know in the NBA, we've seen success. We've seen teams like the Warriors who have managed to live and die by the three and roll through the competition. But in the college game, is there a big difference there, do you think?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think especially now because the NBA kind of drafts on uh, body frame and, and potential as opposed to kind of performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think it's a huge factor still, but I'm kind of on the side of like athletic, big wing, mm. you know, big wingspan, athletic three and D guys, um, that, that can get you further. And you kind of take into account, like the mentality of you put four guys on the court that are good at everything, but not great at one thing. And I think that's kind of the recipe for winning a national championship. And we've seen that with a bunch of teams, you know, in, in the past, you look at Baylor that just won the national championship right, last year. Right. And, you know, Davion Mitchell, great defender, you know, great three point shooter, good at everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, Jared Butler just all around really, really solid in everything he does. Um, uh, Jonathan Chachua, uh, he's huge
0: yes, and he yes.
1: still does everything well. He, he passes well, he shoots mid range well, mm-hmm. and that's just kind of the, the blueprint for I think college teams and now I think in, in the next few years we'll see NBA teams yes. um, kind of take that mold of just really big athletic, tall wingspan guys
0: mm-hmm.
1: that spread the floor and do every single thing well as opposed to, you know, just uh, your uh, Joe Harris guy that yeah. sits in the corner shoots threes like right. myself.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's, you know, when you say that, it makes me sort of think about the teams that are doing that or are producing the talent that goes to the NBA because they're built around that kind of talent. And, you know, when you mentioned uh, you mentioned earlier about sort of this top-heavy aspect of, of the, uh, the league this year, and I want to know just when we get down to March, obviously, we're a few months away, but are, do you think there's room for more upsets this year? I know last year was extremely, you know, in the first couple rounds, a lot of, you know, a lot of questionable, uh, a lot of questionable uh, games out there, but I want to know is this a tournament that you see as being more unpredictable this year or do you see it being more along the traditional lines of what I would say maybe four or five years ago uh,
1: I mean I think it's tough I think it's kind of a crapshoot honestly uh, I think the, the worst thing obviously is filling out your bracket because right. you want to do chalk all the way and next thing you know The school of art is beating Gonzaga, (laughs) and your whole bracket's in flames. Right. I think you know, in any year, it can fluctuate. I'm not 100% sure about this year, but I do have uh, more confidence in the top teams this year. Top 10 to 15, Mm -hmm. um, I think, are are really going to be able to do it this year. And you know, we say that every year, but. You know it's true. It's true. Yeah, Uh, you always want to pick the upsets, but you look at the Elite Eight and the Final Four, and well, not maybe not so much the Elite Eight, but the Final Four. It's
0: it's generally the top teams, right? I mean,
1: right. It's traditionally the one and two seeds. You kind of don't see threes or, or really anything lower than that.
0: Right. It's. I don't know if as a fan I would be as excited about that, but I think that's sort of what drives sort of that whole first and second round sort of like upset factor that everyone really tunes in for. You know, when you have 12-5 upsets or 13-4s, it's almost like, you know, I think fans are more interested in the tournament when that happens early on. But you know what, I think you make a really great point in sort of the idea of the first round being the place for upsets. And really, at the end of it all, it's really, you know, these sort of Blue Bloods that are in the Finals. I mean, even think about UCLA. I mean, you know just as well as I do. I mean, they were an 11 seed and they made the Finals, but still, you know, that sort of program that now we're looking at them as, oh, clearly a top five team, even though none of the polls going into the tournament really, you know, saw them as really a potential, you know, wild card in the tournament. But... Well, first of all Spence thank you very much for joining us but we're actually gonna wrap things up here with a couple of rapid fire questions uh just Whoa. sort of all right yeah so we're gonna die well it's gonna be a little college a little uh little uh college football a little college basketball I want to know first instinct some predictions here so first off top four teams is Alabama in there
1: I'm gonna say they're gonna they're gonna lose that game to Georgia by a field goal and they're gonna get in.
0: Really? Okay. So that puts them. I would say that puts them around a four. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, second thing. Also, uh, another football question. Uh, bowl games this year. Uh, New Year's Day games. Uh, are we seeing a team from the Big Ten winning in that first game? Ooh, man. <laughs> it's, it, you know, there I, I, I say that on, because it's, it's like, no,
1: uh, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to say yes. I think really? the Big Ten's been, been through a lot. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: this is their year. This is their of, year.
1: Yeah. We'll see about that, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know. It's a, it's a really tough division, uh, a conference rather. And, uh, they just kind of eat each other up every week. So right. I think they'll be okay.
0: Really? Okay. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Uh, then we're, all right. Moving to basketball a little bit. Uh, Syracuse playing team or automatic bid? Or not at all. Uh, I think, you know, if you look at... Yeah, Lenardi, I know, had him as a first four in team, but that shifted a little bit. Well, let me hear your thoughts.
1: Well, listen, Syracuse thrives when they're in the 11th (laughs) seed. Yes, very true, yes. I'm going to say they get in. I think the ACC, uh, towards the bottom, is a lot weaker than it's been. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Pitt, really bad. Um, Louisville, decent. Virginia was ranked. They lost to... I don't even know who a bunch of teams. I think they're going to get in uh, with no sweat, but I don't think they're going to be any higher than you know a seven. Okay, six would be nice.
0: Yeah, yeah, it would be nice, but is it realistic though?
1: (laughs) Time will tell. (laughs) Yes, yes,
0: absolutely. And uh, last thing, uh, over under on one seeds in the Elite Eight. I'm putting it at three and a half. What do you think?
1: Oh, I'm going over. I I think, I I don't think I can contradict myself because I said the top is so top-heavy. Right. Uh, And I think, you know, I can name three right now, Gonzaga, Duke, uh, and Purdue, Mm that I think get in.
0: Really? Get in there very easily. I know. It's like, you know, I I put it at three and a half, obviously, because it means that, you know, all four get in. You still, you really do see it that way.
1: Yeah, I I do. Okay.
0: yeah, uh, and, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, I, I, I just because you know when we were talking about top-heavy teams, it's interesting to think about. You know, if you have an elite eight that is sort of presented this way, uh, I wonder if fans will be as interested, even though it's not necessarily you know if we don't have any necessarily any Cinderella stories. But we're gonna have to see, Spencer. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And uh, before I let you go. Uh, gonna ask you a quick thing as a Yankee fan, just as a side as a side thing. Are we excited for the season? Off season, they haven't really done anything. What are your thoughts there?
1: Uh, hmm. Well, I was I was excited, uh, and then this morning happened. Yeah. Right
0: um. now, as you, if you're listening on Tuesday, this morning does refer to the Max Scherzer move going to the New York Mets, and uh, obviously that was a big issue there. Uh, any more thoughts on the Yankees there?
1: um I don't know they gotta wake up man yeah they're uh, if if I if I wake up tomorrow and Andrelton Simmons is the Yankees starting shortstop instead of Corey Seeger I think we're gonna have a big problem yeah have to call in and yell
0: yeah uh, you know what spence I I will be yelling I will be yelling just as much as you will well Spencer thank you for the time we really appreciate it uh loved having you